You're listening to Episcopal Youth Ministry in ATL. Hello and welcome back to Episcopal Youth Ministry in ATL. My name is Matthew. I'm here with Ashley and Wallace. What are y'all up to today? Uh, Right now I'm just confused because I've never heard you refer to yourself as Matthew. Mm -hmm. Um, Really? no, That's a move don't. I'm trying to make now that I've oh. taken a diocesan job. I find Matt to be sometimes a little too informal. <laughs> Matthew's a grown-up. I know. I'm 31 years old, and I want those extra three letters on the end of my name. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm doing well. Uh, we are getting ready for uh, for a baby, and so that's really cool. And... I'm trying to play as many uh, video games as I possibly can before said baby arrives. Hmm. Let's be serious. Wow. We are um, having the baby already. We already have it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what I've been doing today. (laughs) Having a baby in my house. There are there are no babies in my household. There's just a bunch of IKEA furniture that we've been putting together, mm-hmm. um, which might be the same. Yeah, it's the exact same. Okay, just make except it. except that baby babies don't come with instructions and the tools that you need to keep them together. Okay, good to know. Uh, we wanted to talk about kind of the format that we're going to be going through this season, which will be. Um, One episode will be a very kind of direct, applicable, how are we doing something in youth ministry? And then another episode each month will kind of be about a hot topic issue or something kind of relevant in society going on at the moment. This is one of the reasons we decided to roll out and and have that episode about blackness in youth ministry and offer that. Um, Something that we can kind of think more on instead of act on more. so we're excited, and, and and today we wanted to talk about privilege in youth ministry. And I know if you're in the Episcopal denomination um, and, and you work in the Episcopal dom- denomination, you kind of keep up with what's going on, you probably hear the word privilege a lot, and you may be kind of worn out by it, but I want to encourage you to, to hang on and to listen, because I think we're going to talk about it not just in terms of race, um, which is a very important conversation, and absolutely we're going to talk about that. Um, but I think we're going to maybe offer some different shades to a conversation that we may not realize. And so my first question to y'all, when I use that word privilege in the sense of youth ministry or related to youth ministry, what comes to your mind? <laughs> Such a big topic and question. Um, what come, I mean, what immediately comes to my mind is race. Uh, I think, you know, not just because that's like what everybody's talking about right now, but because Episcopalians are mostly white, <laughs> if we're being honest and, um, a lot, and a lot of affluent white people, uh, in go to church at Episcopal churches. Um, and so I think probably the Episcopal Church is in many ways like a hub uh, for privilege, um, both in, in race and economic status. And, you know, in my experience in the Episcopal Church, there's a lot of men in leadership 
and the highest leadership positions. Um, so you, I guess you can also come at it from that angle. We're kind of a, a good petri dish of of all of the different forms of privilege. Yeah, I so Ashley, I think hit the nail on the head. And my feelings about that, I would also add uh, as a as a lay person, so someone uh, who's not for those who aren't part of the Episcopal Church and who might not have heard the word lay, um, somebody who's non clergy. Uh, I think that that's another uh, form, another dynamic of privilege, especially since I think the application of a lot of aspects of our church uh, does sort of uh, differentiate uh, people with a collar and people without collars. Uh, Even though I think in how we talk about it, we try to avoid some of those, uh, some of the power dynamics Um, that can kind of happen. Um, if you know what I mean? Like, I think we, we don't necessarily practice. Um, we don't necessarily avoid the privilege that the privileges that differentiate between a clergy, clergy personnel and lay personnel. There we go. Words are hard. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. If you and I are both proposing something to a group of people, they're going to go with my thing over your thing probably, right? Because I have a collar on and they're going to think that I somehow make more sense. (laughs) That's not true. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's true. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I think for me, like if I'm being honest, there's a bit of like uncomfortableness in this conversation for me because I – I attribute privilege very much to race. And I, I know that like as a straight white male, um, like I am, what I am sometimes is the poster child of what the Episcopal church wants for youth ministry. I play guitar. I have a nice family. I'm, you know, this and that. And I know that I've probably benefited from that. Um, but it still, it feels dirty for me to say that. Like, it feels like, just acknowledging that is somehow making it okay. But at the same time, like I feel like there are blind spots in my view of ministry that I may not recognize. Um, I have always predominantly worked at churches where the surrounding neighborhood is upper middle class. You know, a significant amount of the kids go to some private school or some decent school in the area. All of my kids are going to college. And so like, I wonder where are those blind spots in ministry, whether that's financial status, sexuality, gender, race, you know, laity versus clergy, where are those blind spots that we should all be looking for, that I should be looking for? I think class is a big one. Um, we, one of the things that I have realized and then I keep being reminded of uh, in some of the conversations that I've been having with a couple members of my church is that there, there are the, the class differences between people in, in my church is a, is a lot more vast than I think I recognize or that I even allow myself to recognize. And so, so I think quite often uh, I'm trying to, for instance, like, uh, 
if we're getting ready for a mission trip. I'm trying to figure out, so what what is a payment plan or what is a payment and scholarship plan or what is a full scholarship look like for for a child? Because I know that their parent cannot afford the $300 or the even $250 for this mission trip. So how can I make that happen so that they can walk away um, and and not feel burdened by one more thing, by one more monetary issue. I, I also think that sexuality is is another uh, blind spot of mine. I think I, I tend to want to avoid the, those conversation like conversations. I fully recognize that uh, that I have youth who are trying to figure things out um, or who have already figured things out and uh, and need a place to be able to talk about those things. And so I think that there's like an extra, um, an extra sense of like, like I think I have to work myself up to that, uh, to then be able to talk to, uh, talk to a child uh, that need, that wants somebody to talk to about their, uh, their sexuality. And I don't think that I necessarily recognize my privilege of being, of being straight and, recognizing that that what that wasn't an issue um an issue that I would face yeah I think um a blind spot for me I liked what you said about class Wallace you know I I realized that we ask a lot of folks you know going on trips and stuff like that and we assume that twenty dollars here and twenty dollars there and thirty dollars that here is like not going to add up and make a difference, but it does for some people. But I think beyond that, you know, only recently have I realized that, you know, class privilege is also race privilege, right? You know, we're talking about a bunch of rich white people and, and then there are some people you know, like we just, we tend to be rich and white in the Episcopal church. And that's because of race, right? Like white people have gotten ahead over and above black people. That's just a fact, right? And, and so it's interesting the way that our minds then think about it, like all white people in our parishes are wealthy. Well, that's not true, you know? And like, I just, you have to think about people individually and collectively, right? You know, I mean, we have to acknowledge like the the systems and the individuals all at once. And like, that's a big thing to do. Um, And you think you're just planning a bowling trip, but there's more to it than that, you know? And, and I just really never thought much about that um, until recently. I wonder too, like, how do you bring these conversations to the youth? Because I think you can, you, you can run up against two walls. One, like, let's call it for what it is. We're in the South and I love the South. I will go to bat for the South, you know, any day of the week because it's where I'm from. Like, yes, there are parts of this part of the country that stink. And I mean that (laughs) metaphorically, but also sometimes, Literally. Um, But like, I see the good parts of it as well. And I want to champion those parts. And I love it so much. And this also goes for the Episcopal Church. Like, 
It's, it may sound like I, I'm picking at the Episcopal Church in this episode, but I love it enough to want it to be its best version. Um, but like you can run up against two walls when this, where you have, you know, maybe you encounter a youth who is like, I don't care about this. This is ridiculous. This is stupid. This has nothing to do with Jesus. And then you can also run up against the wall of like kids who feel or youth who feel like they get it already. You know, they put the right things on their Instagram. They're knowledgeable about, you know, what's going on. They read the right books. They listen to the right podcasts and music and they don't say the wrong things. And so they kind of just shut off because they've already checked that box. And I wonder how do you bring the church and them together on this subject? Because I fear sometimes like I am just another voice. Like well, a few months ago, I, I called Wallace and I was talking to him after the the George Floyd murder. Um, and I should have called, I felt like I should have called him earlier but I remember saying, like, I didn't want to be just another woke white guy lamenting to his black friend about why doesn't everyone vote like me and read like me and talk like me and believe like me. And I, I, I don't want that. Like, I just don't want everyone to believe like me and be a bunch of little map hours around the world. Um, Matthew. So, like, sorry, Matthew. <laughs> Thank you for keeping with my branding. Um so, like, how do you bring people under that umbrella of of feeling like they have or they are having the right conversations, but also not just like making them you or like little versions of you? Well, I think when you consider that the alternative is silence, you know it it doesn't matter as much, right? It's and I don't know that there's like right and wrong conversation. I feel like there's just conversation. Like we we just aren't talking about any of this, right? So anything, any little bit of conversation moves the needle just a little bit, right? And you're not coming at it like this is what I think and you should think it too. It's just you know, having folks talk about where they are and what they think and you know, offering different perspectives to one another, I think has tremendous value, you know, especially when there is no bar and, you know, there's nothing, I don't know, we're, we're not doing anything. So we got to start somewhere. I think also um, creating spaces. So creating spaces that are open for those people to have those conversations is really important. I also think being and this is something that that I'm sure we all struggle with in um, in some ways. Being willing to share our own um, observations, our own uh, our own beliefs to a certain extent. Uh, one of the things that I remember a, a long time ago um, was having a conversation. Uh, one of a youth that I worked with um, had lots of wanted that basically opened the door for a lot of conversations essentially about privilege. And I think that I learned from them just almost as much as they probably um, learned from me in that experience and in that conversation. And I, so, so I think also being willing to, um, I think part of that is for us to be willing to open ourselves up as well in those conversations or to an, to a certain extent in those conversations. I think, you know, like God reveals so much through other people, 
you know, and, and there, there is so much that every single child of God on this planet has to teach all of us. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right, Wallace. I mean, we just have to have open minds and open hearts to listen. And, and that also means to listen to views that are different from ours. You know, if you don't really hear the other side, how can you know that you're quote, right? (laughs) You know, I, I think we, we absolutely just have to approach all of these conversations with the knowledge that that God teaches us things through other people. And that's sort of at the heart of what we're here to do, you know, is, is see God and, and witness to one another. And if we don't make space for that, then who's going to? I think to the realization that it might not happen in one conversation or it might not happen in the time that you think it is. Like I remember when I was at St. James, I had kind of picked up on this weird thing about just weird memes in youth culture. And it just like, it hit me hard and I wanted to just like stomp it out and get rid of it. And so I like went into a lesson with the youth super, super aggressively. And it was very like, how can you do this? This is ridiculous. This isn't who you are. Um, And they fought back against it. And it was like, it was aggressive. I mean, I was aggressive. They were aggressive. And then we both stepped back. And for the next month, we talked about it. And so, you know, it, it, it not, this isn't something that like you say the right, you, you figure out the right words to the puzzle and the door opens and that person suddenly, you know, is woke or enlightened or whatever. Um, I I think it's one of those things where like, this is tough work. It is not a two plus two equals four. It is a much longer equation that we have no idea maybe what the numbers a hundred steps out look like. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to like get clear on what your goal is. You know, I mean, is the outcome that at the end of this school year, all of the children in this youth group are going to be anti-racist. Well, okay, that's a lovely goal. And are you going to achieve it? Probably not. You know, so maybe you focus less on the outcome and more on the process. You know, maybe it's just what you're there to do is have the conversations. What you're there to do is put some scripture in front of it. You know, what what you're there to do is put some God in front of it. And you just just begin to put things on the table and to listen to one another. You know, it's not like at the end of the year, you're going to take a test and prove how woke you are. <laughs> you know, that's not, I, I don't know. And so I, I would say to anybody beginning to do this work, just get really clear on what you want your, what you want your goals to be. Yeah. I, I think also check, uh, check out yourself. So um, if you, so if you are a, if, if you have a youth group of, for instance, like mixed, uh, mixed genders, uh, and you have a youth leadership team that is uh, comprised of youth, and you you look at your youth leadership team and it's only women on it, are you have you created a place where uh, people who aren't women <laughs> or who don't identify as a as a young woman um, can be a part of that? What what kind of standard are you setting? Um, I, I think that reminding 
so part of like the discussions about privilege is to recognize like what are the privileges that we have, what are the and then how are we um, how are we enact like enacting those or living living into them or trying to avoid them in our in our lives, and that's a I think that's hard to do, that's hard to sometimes recognize, um, to then you know, and then to I think to correct. Um, or to maybe change. Wow, that just what you just said made me think about the the parents <laughs> that I've that I've had in various youth groups who are the most involved and who are the ones calling me and showing up at church saying, "You know what you need to do and how about we do this and how about we do that?" And they are always either stay-at-home moms or people who work jobs that are flexible enough that they can show up at church in the middle of the day. Um, and, you know, I, I'm rarely hearing from the, the working parents and those who, you know, whose kids can't come to things because, you know, that their work schedule doesn't allow them to drive them and drop them off and all that kind of stuff. And so that, like you just saying that just made me realize how I have had a tendency to let the the really privileged folks make decisions and influence the way that I build schedules and calendars and stuff like that. And that, you know, I, I wish that I paid more attention to that and had more equal representation. Um, wow. Thanks, Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> really, I'm really like that. I just, I didn't realize that until just this moment. I mean, but I was going to say, even, you know, there's, there, there are times where like, I think I have to like check, check my stuff at the door and be like, wait one second. Is, am I not doing this because of some important reason or am I doing this because of a, because of a reason or am I doing this because it's easy or because it makes sense with me? And like, I think that we, you know, we can look at, um, even, you know, small things, um, in our lives where, where we're like, I'm going to do this out of convenience for me, or I'm going to do this because like this fits my needs. Um, and then ignore obviously the, the needs of other people. And I think privilege, um, in some ways ties into that. Uh, and so like I said before, like maybe check, like look into like, what is your own privilege and how does that affect the way that you interact with the world? So, well, I think it's even like, it even comes out in the advice, the advice we give to youth, like when they come to an issue. And so like a few, I guess it was last week, somebody picked up on the, 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 like the, like, I don't talk about my dad a lot. And it's cause I don't have a relationship with my dad and I haven't for like 12 years. And they were saying, you know, when Matt, when you have a kid, you'll want to get back into contact with your dad uh, to tell him that you're, he'll have a grandchild. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I'll deal with that later. And the more I started thinking about it, the more I'm like, that person is coming from a place where they have a relationship where they can just talk to their parent and like a fight is just a fight that they can say, sorry, like my dad hasn't called me in over 10 years. Like that's a whole different privilege that that person is speaking from that they have no clue as to what my relationship with my dad looked like. And it like, it did, it retouched a lot of pain in me where that was just them trying to be nice and supportive and helpful. So I think it even comes down to like the advice we give, like, yes, it's tough to like 
you know, feel like you're going to walk on eggshells, but also just like, Wallace, what you said, check yourself and what you may know about yourself when somebody is asking or when a youth is asking for advice. Yeah, I think, you know, asking a lot more questions than giving answers is probably the way to to lead youth, you know, helping them come to their own conclusions rather than projecting all of our stuff all over them. <laughs> you know, I think you can do a lot of damage that way. I think a lot of this also comes from, I mean, we were talking about it earlier, the Episcopal Church, and let's not be foolish, look where Episcopal churches are in congregations are planted. Um, a lot of them are in financially stable neighborhoods with a target 10 minutes from them. Like we, we are strategically planted in places we think we will financially grow and thrive. And once again, I say that as in, in a place of love for this denomination, so much love that I want to call out where I see the inequity in it. Um, and so like, how can we remove ourselves from our own way and, and make our congregations who may not care and our youth who may not understand care and realize and what effect does that have for our group? I think that's really hard. Um, I, I think similar to some of the conversations that we've been having on this podcast is looking at and I, and I know that nobody really wants to do this, but looking at history um, and taking a deep a deep look at like why why is this the thing that we did? Um, why is this a decision that we made? Why is this the the way that we moved? Um, you know, so why is what what was attractive in 1952 when they built St. David's in the location that they built St. David's was part of it because it was the only place where there was available land in Roswell. Maybe, I don't know. Um, and it was the only place, only place for available land in which like, uh, St. David's could eventually grow. Maybe. Um, or was, was there other reasons? Were there other reasons? Um, I think even, you know, I think that there, there are reasons why we do stuff. And so part of that is for us to look at history and then to have real discussions about that. I also think, you know, some of when we're talking with our, with parents, when we're talking with, with youth, I think even other members of our congregation, I think that we should also remember that we need to listen to them just as much as we're trying to um, quote unquote educate. Uh, I, I think we need to listen to them and continue, continually take the pulse of where they are, like as we're having those conversations. Cause I, cause this is obviously privilege is a hard conversation to have. Uh, <laughs> actually, uh, you know, saying my church is experiencing um, is in a uh, rector search. And so, I think the big joke for me is that uh, is is that a lot of rector searches are usually looking for one type of person, um, and then and then they'll uh, decide um, 
they're usually looking for a white male uh, around the eight, like somewhere in the forties and fifties range. Uh, hopefully their second careers, or maybe they've had some experience like leading a group of people um, such as like a vice president of, of an organization. And then if they have at least one kid, um, that's great. Um, but then we don't want that kid to be super young because then they're not going to be spending time with us. And that's like the, <laughs> that is like the idea of like a, of a rector, I think for, a, for a lot of churches. And then, um, as they go, then hopefully they peel back sort of like, well, maybe we want something more than just the demographic that I shared before. Uh, maybe we're okay with having, you know, a woman. Okay, cool. Uh, maybe we're okay with them, you know, being liberal, even though we're in a more conservative area. Okay. Like that's, that's a new layer. Um, I think, uh, I think for, I think allowing ourselves to, to grow and encouraging us to encouraging us to make changes, even if they're incremental, um, are good. It's good. I think asking our congregations to do that is, is a good thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, just recognizing all of this and, and putting cards on the table and naming all of it is just really helpful. And, you know, it, all that does is help us learn what we need to repent from, you know, I mean, what, like, I thought I wanted a middle-aged white guy rector. Well, actually I would love a middle-aged lady rector, you know, <laughs> and like, okay. So like you have to kind of confess your, your assumptions on the front end and really repent and, and redirect and, and forge a new way ahead. You know, I think nobody's going to do that if you don't first say, whatever the thing is, you know, I, I didn't think that a black person was going to be capable of leading our white parish. Why, you know, and, and get all of that out there. And so that you can then perhaps realize that black priests are just as capable as white priests, you know, and, and, and that might change some minds, you know, I think, I think we have a responsibility to repent and, and the only way we do that is to first confess. And, you know, we don't like to think of it in those words because those are like scary words, but that's at the core of our liturgy and a core of our theology. And, you know, we have to teach people how to do that safely. And I think these are like uncomfortable conversations to have, whether and whether that's with youth or with, you know, whoever, your, your rector or your vestry or your leadership team, like before you enter into these conversations, I think talking to them can be uncomfortable. I think most importantly, you want to let everyone know, like, here's what I'm doing and here's why I want to do it. Um, but I, I think they're important conversations. They're, they're conversations we need to have if we're going to step forward in youth ministry and not get stuck in the 80s. Not saying that everything in the 80s was bad, but things have changed since then. Um, so, and, and that goes from like happening and new beginnings and diocesan retreats all the way up to like mission trips, like mission trips from the seventies and the eighties look completely different than they do now. Um, you know, and even now I think mission trips have gotten so flashy in, in Episcopal youth programs of like, what's going to be the best photo op who, you know, competing with other youth leaders where it's like, I'm going to the Bahamas and we're going to do this oh, well, I'm going to this fancy place. Like maybe financially 
You do not need to maximize every single trip. Maybe you can do something simple in your town. Maybe you can go to, you know, the mountains uh, in, in Tennessee where typically there's really terrible poverty. Uh, you know, seek those things that aren't flashy and you may find something that means more, I think. We want to pause and offer a resource of the episode. Resource of the episode. I do. Today's resource for the episode is a book called Race, Talk, and the Conspiracy of Silence, Understanding and Facilitating Difficult Dialogues on Race. It's written by Daryl Wing Sue. And uh, it's a really wonderful book for those of us who are leading difficult conversations. It teaches us about the psychology that folks bring to the table when they discuss race. And it talks about all uh, many different perspectives. And I think that, um, you know, you could read this book and it would apply to conversations beyond race. I think it just helps us understand how to facilitate all all manner of difficult um, conversations. So I would commend it to anybody uh, trying to do difficult work in groups. That's all the time we have for this episode. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on social media, get in contact with us. If you have an idea for anything you'd like us to talk about, we're going to end with a, a prayer. Wallace, would you close us in prayer? God, thank you for walking with us, for being beside us, uh, even when we uh, don't always recognize that you are. Guide us as we go out into the world, as we seek your face in all people who we come across. Help us to lift the burden of privilege off of our shoulders and encourage us to step out into a world where um, a world in which is broken and needs our help to fix it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.